This morning we concentrate our time on Romans chapter 11 and we look to verses 15 to 20. And we come to what I've entitled the sermon, Israel's Salvation, both its reconciliation and rejection. So Israel's Salvation, Rejection and Reconciliation. So uh, this passage is concerning Israel's hope, Israel's salvation uh, related to the Messiah. But it's also concerning the rejection that Israel has uh, has demonstrated toward God himself. And then Paul speaks of a time in which they will be reconciled. So this is a very important thing to consider when we think about salvation, because salvation is not only uh, among the Gentiles, but salvation is of the Jews. In God's scheme and his salvation plan, by priority, he began first to save the Jews. And then now the implication being he has turned for a time to the Gentiles. And so we'll look at that this morning. But the following verses uh, center around uh, all the verses that seem to follow and some of what leads up to what we'll be studying this morning center around Paul's question in verse 15. And so I want to read that question again, because that's what Paul spends a lot of time in this passage answering. For he says, for if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? And so if Israel's rejection is the reconciliation of the world, he says, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? So every verse that follows goes to this original question and statement. And even as we look back uh, toward verse 11, uh, he's dealing with this reality as we see it in 15. So it's all connected to him answering the question of reconciliation uh, and eternal life for the Jews because of the reconciliation and eternal life for the Gentiles. So Israel's rejection led to the reconciliation of believers in the world. But as we must make the case, as we always do when we come to words that may seem as totality, and uh, we look at world and it's limited to its context, even in this passage, because the first is referring to divine reality. So when we look at this passage, we're looking at events that will take place, events that will take place based upon an event that has taken place. In other words, all Israel rejected. Some Gentiles receive salvation and some among Israel will be reconciled to God. Let me repeat that. So these are definite events. All Israel rejected. Some Gentiles receive salvation and some among Israel will be reconciled to God. And then based on if we were to look further down uh, the passage in verses 25 to 30, based on those verses, there will be after disobedience. A reconciliation to God for some among Israel. So if you were to look at verses 25 to 30, and we will, we'll look at those very closely in the days to come. But in verses 25 to 30, there will be a definite reconciliation for some among Israel to God. And it is a time after their persistent and continual disobedience. And so Paul starts there. He starts with that question. For if their rejection, he assumes that it's true. He assumes that they've rejected, but he also assumes reconciliation. For if their their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, 
what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? So he's talking about remnant Gentiles and remnant Jews. Because the way is narrow that leads to life. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. And so he's referring to this group of people among Jews and Gentiles who have been, will be uh, preserved uh, by God unto salvation and reconciliation. And then in verse 16, he begins to speak in a way as to bring forward an analogy. In verse 16, he says, if the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. And if the root is holy, the branches are too. If the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. And if the root is holy, the branches are too. And so Israel is considered God's uh, God's chosen people. They are considered holy, not by what they had done to earn it, but by God's gracious choice. Well, where am I getting that from? I'm getting that from the text itself that uh, Paul says about them, that they were saved according to God's gracious choice. And understand the covenants as we must, we consider the Mosaic covenant. That's the one that we have to think about first when we're looking at this passage, because you had the promises as related to the Abrahamic covenant. You had the promises of a land. You had the blessing of a seed. And then you had this blessing in the Mosaic covenant of God's presence among his people. So God's presence would remain among them. And this was to be theirs as long as they obeyed. So God's presence was to dwell among the people as long as they obeyed. And it is the only covenant based on this two-way condition. So God did something, and the Jews had to respond by doing something. So it was a condition of their obedience that they were to be kept in this covenant. So the idea is that if you obey, then you will be blessed. It's very simple. But if you disobey, then you will be cursed. And you're familiar with that language as it works itself out in the Torah, in the law, in the Pentateuch. So they first, in the scope of time, were God's chosen people, and they were considered holy. They were God's chosen people, and they were considered holy. And so what Paul argues here, he goes, uh, to the, he goes from the uh, greater to the lesser. And he goes from the origins to what proceeds from the origin. He goes from the essential nature to that which comes from the essential nature. And so he talks about he talks about the first piece of dough being holy. And the first piece of dough would be God himself. It would be God himself. And I say that because when we get down to the language concerning the root, it is a parallel. The root itself is considered holy. And so everything that comes from the root is then considered holy because of its attachment. The same thing uh, in the culinary ideas that you have this mother dough that you start baking with. And then everything that proceeds from that is a benefit. Everything that proceeds from that, you can make a myriad of things. Uh, and so Paul is saying that he's saying that the first piece of dough is holy. The first piece of dough is holy and the root is holy. And so then it stands, the lump is then holy and also the branches. And so we'll get a little bit more into that. But as we look at the lump, we also consider the Jews and the Gentiles, elect Jews and elect Gentiles in verse 16. Just as that first piece of dough is holy, the source of all that comes from the source. So the first piece of dough is the great source, capital S. 
And the elect Gentiles, the elect Jews, were considered holy since they belonged to the same God and the same salvation plan of God by God's gracious choice. And there's that word again. It comes to us from Romans chapter 11, verse 5. It talks about God's gracious choice. In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. And so you see that this is speaking of God as the source of both the Jews and the Gentiles salvation. He's the source of their salvation. The first piece of dough is holy. And then the lump is also. The people are too. And if the root is holy, the branches are too. Now look at verse 17. We'll talk a little bit more about 16, but I want you to look at 17 because uh, there is a somewhat a relationship between the branches and the root. But if some of the branches were broken off and you being a wild olive, now we have something that's introduced were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. So if you look at this second part of verse 16, especially as it relates to this, I want to mention it again. The root is God himself. There's a lot of debate as to what is the root? How do we consider the root? Uh, what are the branches? Who are the branches? But everything is said so plainly. The root is God himself, and the root is holy. The root is holy because that is the intrinsic nature of the root itself. And so in this agricultural language, what Paul is trying to help the the Roman Gentiles understand is their place in the salvation plan of God, but that neither them nor nor the Jews are severed from God in such a way that they could bring about their own righteousness. That's essentially what he's trying to get to. So the root is God himself. And therefore, what comes from the root must also be considered holy. What comes from the root must also be considered holy. Put it another way, as long as you are with the root, as long as you are in relation to the root, you are then considered to bear the nature of the root. And this reminds us so much of the language of John 15 when Jesus is talking about the vine. He's talking about remaining in him, abiding in him. But if you look at verse 17, something happened. And that's why that's why I read it to you. Verse 17, something happens. And we have to acknowledge that something happened. But if some of the branches were broken off, branches were broken off. They were snapped. They were severed. And now, if you look at this, Brantford and you being a wild olive were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. And so people will stop here and they'll look at this verse and they'll say, well, the branches, original Israel, as a people and a nation, they were broken off. And they agree with that. They agree that that's taken place. Typically, most people will agree that at some point, In Israel's history, they had been severed from the plan of God by their own doing. So, but here's the thing. It is not our task to blend them into our our group without considering all the distinctions that God is making. And it is not our task to pretend that they were never the priority for God in the scheme of his redemptive timeline. So it's not our task to simply just... Blend them in. Just welcome them in. 
with no standard except that they exist. Nor is it our task to pretend that they were never the priority for God in the scheme of his redemptive timeline. So that's standing between, if we were to look at markers of, on the left side, bookmarkers, and on the right side, we can't pretend to blend them in simply on a national scope. And then we can't pretend that God never made them a priority of his salvation plan. Well, why do I say that? Because of what the text says. If you look at verse 17, but if some branches were broken off and it doesn't stop there. Now he begins to move on to the Gentiles. He says, and you being a wild olive were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. So then God grafted branches in he grafted he did some repair work of his own doing he grafted branches in and who are those branches he grafted in it's us the wild olives and it would be somewhat of a distraction to go into all the ways the grafting process is helpful in agriculture that would be a distraction because that's not what Paul wanted to accomplish Paul's point was not to discuss how beneficial it is to graft in wild olives to a native tree so that they could benefit from the rich root. It's not what Paul was essentially going to. He was painting a picture of olive trees, which the people of that time would have been extremely familiar with. And instead, what he's trying to do is he's trying to, from that picture in nature, he's trying to make the case that uh, that olive trees demonstrate to us in this example how Israel was severed from God by their own hand. And yet, in saying that, it's a very simple picture. We did not belong to the olive tree in the first place. That's essentially what he's saying. You were to look at the tree, you recognize you had no relationship to the tree at all. And if you had no relationship to the tree, you had no relationship to the root. We were wild. We were not native to the tree. We were not native to, to the scene at all. We did not belong. And so then we were part of the patchwork to be brought into the tree and patched as such to be, listen to this, partakers with them. Partakers with them. It doesn't say they're partakers with us. We're partakers with them of the rich root of the olive tree. You see that sequence? That is an important sequence. It keeps us from preaching Zionism. Simply the fact that a nation of Israel exists and therefore that nation is blessed by God. But it also keeps us from preaching uh, covenant theology and all of its replacement features. They would say they're not replacing anything, but they really are. Uh, from the perspective of making it seem as though Gentiles started first and the Jews have to find their place. That's not true. The Jews were the first uh, were the first in the scheme of God's divine plan. And we had to find our place. And in finding our place, we are now in fellowship with them. But let's pause for a moment. If you think about Paul's ministry, we talked about this before. If you think about Paul's ministry, didn't Paul minister that way? He began with the Jews first, and then he went to the Gentiles. And even when there were tensions in the church that arise in the Jerusalem council, and we studied in our time in Ephesians, and now we're talking about uh, the warnings of apostasy in our Bible study time in Hebrews. When we think about this, it's always the warnings to Israel. With not only Israel in view, but saying, Gentiles, 
you have to listen as well. That's in Corinthians. Paul says you better learn from Israel's example. And he says uh, so much of that here. But as I said, we did not belong to the olive tree in the first place. We were wild. We weren't native to the tree. We weren't native to anything related to the root. We didn't belong. And Paul goes to that in Romans 1. Speaks of that very plainly in Romans 1. And so then we were part of that patchwork. And now we're partakers with them. We're partakers with the original branches. Now being partakers with them, do we make up an imaginary theological belief system built on arrogance and academic hubris? Which promotes the elimination of God's redemptive plan to the to the Jew first. And then the Gentile and then at a time again in the future to deal with the Jews again. We have to keep that timeline. We have to keep that timeline because if we don't keep that timeline, we are we are becoming conceited and arrogant. That's the timeline. And so it's not that. I'm raising this issue. It's that Paul actually raises this issue to the Gentiles. And he says, I don't only want you to consider your salvation as Gentiles. I want you to consider your salvation among the people of Israel with whom you are partakers of the root, God himself, who grafted you in. There was nothing special about you, just like there was nothing special about Israel in and of themselves. So then in raising this issue, as Paul does... Do we, when uncomfortable with Scripture's clarity, and not we, them, when they are uncomfortable with Scripture's clarity, is it okay to then call this whole matter a secondary issue because we're uncomfortable with it? The fact that it's very plain, I mean, you're reading something that is extremely plain. Obviously, you need divine illumination for it to be plain to you in that sense, but it is very plain. And I would say, how is this issue of Israel and the Gentiles? Listen, this is very important. How is how is this issue insignificant, secondary or unimportant when most of the epistle deals with this salvation scheme of God for Jews and Gentiles? How is it secondary, insignificant and unimportant? How can we fellowship around this and not be clear about it? And it's unimportant and it's not something we should really debate about because there's money to be made. How do we escape this issue if Paul spends almost all of Romans dealing with this issue? Even up to this point, he weaves in and out of Gentile and Jew salvation, and he's trying to maintain distinctions. He's trying to maintain distinctions in God's timeline without creating distinctions in the salvation plan itself. So we can't escape it. We can't escape it because Paul wanted it to be uh, proclaimed. And the Bible is timeless. It's God's eternal word. It must be proclaimed from age to age. But Paul knew something. He knew something. And I believe it's always why when Paul has written an epistle under the inspiration of the divine author, the Holy Spirit. But when Paul is writing an epistle, or in this case, dictating an epistle to Tertius under divine inspiration, he knew that some were arrogant because of this. Paul knew that. That's why I said this letter is not some theological seminar. It's not a Q&A. It's not a history. Acts is a history. But this is concerning salvation, something so eternally important and timeless. And you have to get it right. But Paul knew that some were arrogant because of this. And we know this to be the case because because 
of the tensions in the early church. We know that these tensions were a result of arrogance. Some were arrogant. And we know this because of what we read in Ephesians concerning what took place in Ephesus. We know what took place in Acts related to the Jerusalem Council. We know that there remained a tension between the Jews and the Gentiles all the way up, almost through the very end to the finished canon of Scripture itself. That there is a tension that remains between Jews and Gentiles. Now, listen, we know from our study, here is what the tension is. The Jews would be tempted to defect. They would be tempted to look down on the Gentiles for being grafted in. They would be tempted to defect. And so now they would practice, as James warns against, they would practice partiality. They would begin to treat the Gentiles as though the Gentiles were insignificant. You remember that Peter got sucked into this a bit. In the book of Acts. And Paul had to confront him. Uh, I think it was Acts. And Paul had to confront him concerning this. Uh, It was Galatians. I'm sorry. It was Galatians. Galatians. Peter got sucked into this in Galatians. And it was that the Jews were beginning to look down on the Gentiles for being grafted in. For their place later. If you remember. They're beginning to, in Corinthians, look down on Paul because of his timeline related to being an apostle out of due season. And so Paul didn't come with the 12 originally. He comes after them. And so even in Corinth, they begin to mock his ministry and they begin to mock him. In Philippians, they begin to cause him distress along these lines. So there's that tension. Whereas here's the tension for the Gentiles. The Gentiles would become arrogant. Toward the Jews, since the Jews historically disobeyed God. So the Gentiles would view this simply on a merit system, on a system of personal righteousness. This was a great danger where they would say, well, listen, the Jews failed. We haven't failed. And therefore, we are greater than the Jews. There are a lot of fancy names for what I just described, but that is the prevailing theological view in much of modern evangelicalism. That is the prevailing view. The Jews failed. They disobeyed. They were punished. God came to us, the church. Now the church is a kingdom. And that's what people are acting like. And that's what people are believing today. They'll give a passing glance to Israel, but they don't truly believe that they were grafted in. They believe in some way God smiled on them and they earned it. And they earned his affection. But Paul is here to demolish all of that. To demolish all of that. So there would be this temptation from the Gentiles who would become arrogant toward the Jews since the Jews historically disobeyed God and were punished for their disobedience and rebellion. And where I'm getting this from is further along in our context where Paul begins to explain this with a lot more detail. So then in verse 18, Paul called them to remember. He called them to remember. But before that, he called them to a command. So he calls them to a command and he calls them by way of command. He calls them to remember. And this command is simple. It's simple. You know, at times, even in the Bible, even with respect to commands, as there, you can think of so many of them, but they're put forward so clearly. Commands. This is it's a it's a very black and white thing in terms of when you think ideologically. It's either you're supposed to do this or you're not supposed to do this. And that's the command. 
And so the command in verse 18 is do not be arrogant toward the branches. That's the command. Do not be arrogant toward the original branches. Why? Because you, wild olive, are no different than them. You're no different than them. You are kept by the root. You are kept by the root. Verse 18, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, should you decide that arrogance is simply the disposition that you ought to have and there's something to be arrogant about? Paul says, remember this. Remember that it is not you who supports the root. But the root supports you. The synagogue was not responsible for holding God up. God, as he so chose, decided, if he will, to hold the synagogue up. And when the synagogue came to its conclusion, the same is said about the church. The church gathering is not holding God up as if God just he he really needs our help. No, it's God holding up the church in Christ. And it is Christ himself prevailing his head over the church as king of kings and Lord of lords. We can expand that to society. It is not society that is holding God up. It is God that is deciding I'm going to hold society up. And at some point I'm going to dethrone all these puppet rulers, all these puppet governments, all these immoral things that take place. So Paul says, if you are to be arrogant, if you're going to be arrogant, I want you then to remember. Because this will help stop the arrogance and bring about humility. I want you to remember it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. He's talking about salvation. He's talking about salvation. But he's also talking about the scheme related to how Gentiles are saved in a time after Israel. And yet in Israel's wholesale disobedience, there will be a turning away from Israel to the Gentiles. And it is during that time that the Gentiles should not be arrogant. Well, why? Because God will again deal with Israel. So you should not be arrogant toward Israel. Says you are kept by the root. The root supports the original branches, and listen to this. And the root supports the grafted in branches. It supports the original branches, and it supports the grafted in branches. So none of us can boast in and of ourselves. The Jew cannot boast, the Gentile cannot boast. And, the, and when I say Gentiles, that encompasses every single person, every single nation, every single ethnicity that would be outside of Israel. Paul sweeps in the entire human race. And he says, well, from among them, you who have been elect unto salvation, you cannot be arrogant. Well, when you also recognize that our fellowship, our fellowship with Jewish believers, our fellowship is going to be made manifest. It's going to be something that's made plain when God brings them in completely. It is going to be in his kingdom that that will take place. And so there's no room for arrogance because we all inherit Christ. There's no room for arrogance. Do you know what Paul says concerning how this arrogant, how this arrogance looks? We kind of said it, but it is to look on the branches. It is to look. This arrogance looks on the branches. It looks at the branches and it focuses on the branches while missing the root. 
this arrogant looks at the branches and it focuses on the branches and misses the root. Well, where am I getting that from? Well, verse 19, he goes to what they would say in their arrogance. You will say, then branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Well, we're talking about branches. But Paul is saying you're spending too much time talking about the branches. You need to be concerned with the root. The root being God himself who holds the entire tree together. And so any scheme that promotes the wild olives as superior to the detriment of the root and the original branches, it is a system of arrogance. Any scheme, any system, any theological belief that promotes the wild olives, the Gentiles, to the detriment of the root and the original branches, it is a system of arrogance. It is a false system. And so you see in this, the Gentiles were not wrong to consider that the original branches have been broken off. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul isn't saying let's pretend that the branches weren't broken off. But they were wrong to consider, listen to this, they were wrong to consider themselves deserving in and of themselves, within themselves, of being grafted in. So they were not wrong to consider that their original branches have been broken off. That is a divine and historical fact. They were wrong to consider themselves deserving in and of themselves of being grafted in. Because what use is it to be grafted in if you're self-righteous? Because then you'll be broken off, as Paul says uh, in the verses that follow. You'll be broken off for that because self-righteousness is indeed unbelief. They were wrong not to consider why they had received their salvation in relation to the historical and redemptive plight of Israel. They were wrong. They were wrong not to consider why they had received their salvation. To look at God in great fear and to say these people who were nearest to him rebelled. They rebelled. And yet when they considered themselves, they say we were not even near to him and God brought us near. And we didn't do anything to earn it. Even the faith we have is a gift. The salvation we have is a gift. The Christ coming to us is a gift. I would say that the Old Testament, and as we look at the Old Covenants in their place related to the superior New Covenant, we're not superior. The New Covenant is superior. But I would say this, the Old Testament and the Old Covenants, they keep us humble. They keep us humble. We get that sense even as we're looking through Hebrews. These things, they keep us humble. They keep us from thinking that our place is to eliminate the Jews. Paul gave implicit commands and he gave them in two places. And I believe when someone repeats to themselves, especially when you're talking about divine scripture, there is an emphasis. There's something that you must draw your attention to. And I'm going to show it to you by reading through. Do not be arrogant toward the branches in verse 18. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say then branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Paul says quite right. That's a good observation. You're absolutely right. They were broken off for their unbelief. 
But you stand by your faith. Listen, you don't stand by their unbelief. You stand by your faith. Don't create a system based on their unbelief. Stick with faith in Christ. That's already in place. He says, do not be conceited, but fear. Do not be conceited, but fear. What's missing is this this corporate, pseudo-spiritual, gentlemanly way of saying, oh, it doesn't matter what you think. We're still brothers. It doesn't matter if we work any of these details out. We're still brothers. So-and-so disagrees, but he's headlining our conference. We're still brothers. We just disagree on these finer points. It's not what Paul says, and that's certainly not where Paul stands. Paul either says you have a fear of God or you're conceited. You have arrogance or you have humility. And he rates those things based on you're agreeing with God's will, you're agreeing with God's function and action related to the salvation of Jews and Gentiles. If we're to say, are we humble in salvation? It's not only in the individual sense. There's a lot of that happening where people want to be overly introspective and say, you know, God has saved me and that causes great humility. And I believe that that is a part of it and that certainly needs to be the case. But what also needs to be the case is you look at God's overall scheme and you look at what he's done in relation to the Gentiles and you look at what he's done in relation to Israel and that ought to humble you. Because what Paul is essentially bringing before the Roman Gentiles is you need to be students of the Old Testament ways as well. You need to understand what happened in the Old Testament because it relates so much to the new covenant. And it will demonstrate to you that God has always been about this business of saving remnant Israel. We went through that all the way up to this point in Romans. So in verse 20. Paul is not dealing with arrogance and conceitedness as some kind of way to advance forward in our understanding of this salvation scheme. Paul said, do not be conceited, but fear. Have some humility. Have some true spiritual awareness. Have some true discernment in considering the cautions of your own soul. He not only gave the command to not be arrogant, but he gave it twice. He gave it twice. And then, not only that, he doesn't just say, don't be arrogant, and then he walks off the scene. He gave the remedy for this kind of arrogance. That gives no consideration to what God has given to the Gentiles related to their salvation and what he will give to them, the remnant, remnant Israel, when it is in his good time and pleasure to do so. I think one of the things that has come out of the so-called reformed way of thinking is that people are saying only Christ, only scripture. They're saying Christ alone. They're, they're saying these mantras, but they're acting as though they earned it. And they're acting as though Israel needs to earn it. And they're acting as though they came before Israel. That is how they're acting. I know what they're saying. What they're saying is quotable. It's polished. But they're acting as though none of those things are true. Because you have to look at these things according to God's timeline and agree with them. Paul says that's humility. Today that's considered arrogance. But that's humility. Agreeing with God and his ways and how he has accomplished salvation and what he will do with respect to Israel. That is humility. That's humility. That's saying, I, I, Lord, maybe I wouldn't have done it that way, but who am I? 
You did it that way, and I agree with you. And your ways are past finding out in that sense for me to challenge them. We take up Job's posture. We take up the posture of all who have come before the Lord and said, Lord, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Even God the Son. And he did it from perfection. But they were broken off. These branches were broken off. And that's quite right. But Paul says there's a reason that they were broken off. They were broken off for their unbelief. They were broken off for their unbelief. That is no different from Gentiles who were grafted in in spite of. In spite of themselves, their unbelief had to be essentially overcome by God himself and brought to a place of belief, and they are then grafted in. They are grafted in. And so he gave, he gave the remedy. And it is the sense that Paul is saying... You don't stand by their unbelief. Whatever you want to do, thinking that you're helping God achieve his divine plan as though he needs your help, you don't work from a standpoint of Israel's unbelief because that will only feature arrogance. If you step back and say, wow, I would have never done that. I would have never responded to God that way. I would have never sinned and rebelled against God that way. Well, that's why Romans 1 begins where it does. Because it says you have done that. But it also says that God is not finished with Israel. He's not finished with Israel. And so essentially it's saying watch yourself with respect to that. You have to watch yourself with respect to continual obedience to God. And so he says do not stand by their unbelief. These systems that play with remnant Israel and God's salvation toward them, they stand solely on Israel's unbelief. They're not staking their claim on faith in Christ. They're staking their claim on Israel's failure. That's why they have to keep upholding and emphasizing Israel's failure. Because that's what their belief system is based on. And guess what that's called? Performance. It's called works righteousness. When I'm looking at Israel and saying, well, Israel failed, so therefore I'm good enough to be included in God's salvation plan. They were bad, and therefore now we have to continue to emphasize the fact That Israel will either be replaced or that we can pretend that nationally the standard's a little lower as long as they have the name. But their system is built only on the premise that Israel has failed. And it is why they don't want to hear you say Israel's failure, the remnant, is not final. Because now you're talking the language of divine grace. It's an affront to works righteousness to say that God will deal with Israel again in spite of themselves. And God dealt with Gentiles in spite of themselves. But Paul says you stand by your faith. You stand by faith. If it is to be built on faith, then it is the true faith that God can restore whom he will by his gracious hand. God can reconcile whom he pleases to himself. It is why salvation, he's the source of it. And Paul says, do not be conceited. He says, do not be conceited, but fear. Do not be conceited, but fear. He says that in verse 20. Do not be conceited, but fear. This rings true regarding those who create a so-called Israel 
as the recipient of God's eternal salvation who are only national in nature and in no way related to the remnant Israel who too will stand by their faith. The remnant Israel will also stand by their faith in the Messiah. Faith always has an object. They will stand by what God has accomplished in the Messiah, what God has accomplished in the totality of his works from the Old Testament all the way to the end of Scripture, all the way to the end of time. Believing even those things about the future that will take place and having faith in Christ who has died on the cross for his elect and will bring them to himself. That is the faith that we're looking for. That is the faith that will allow us to identify that is Israel. That's the Israel. Paul said it. That's the Israel from above, that they have faith. And so we ask, when we see this word fear, what that must motivate our fear of the Lord? Well, it's, it's, as I've said, we are only kept because it is God who keeps us. We're only kept because it is God who keeps us. Take a glimpse at verse 21. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. So should he so decide to judge us, it would be just judgment. It would be just. And it would be that which we have earned because the wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And why is that? Because we're no different than the original branches. We're no different. Had either one of us, Jews or Gentiles, had to earn our salvation, we could not do it. It is impossible. We couldn't do it. Because the standard is perfect obedience. Both Jews and Gentiles need one to stand in their place. They need Jesus Christ to stand in their place. And to satisfy God's wrath against them. So the standard is not for us to only be satisfied that Israel rebelled, rebelled, because that is the so-called reformed, sophisticated covenant theology, academic smoke and mirrors that are placed before much of modern evangelicalism, that they are satisfied that Israel has rebelled. That's the standard. And if you were to press them on this, that's where they would go first. They wouldn't go to... Grace alone, faith alone, by Christ alone, scripture alone. They wouldn't go there first. They would go to Israel's failure. And that's where their faith stands. And Paul says that is conceited and that is arrogant. It's conceited and it's arrogant. That's not the standard. More than that, it is to be grateful to the Lord. He says, stand by your faith. Well, what does that look like when we start to talk about Israel? Well, yes, we have to identify we're talking about the remnant, but listen. It is to be grateful to the Lord that we have been brought near. That's that's where our faith is, because in that faith, we then realize, oh, we're going to be brought into his kingdom. So now we are joint heirs with him. We have fellowship with him based on what he has accomplished, and we will be brought to him. And when we see this next, Paul will hold up and specifically verse 22. He will deal with the kindness of God in salvation, but he'll also deal with the severity of God in judgment. He'll deal with the kindness of God in salvation, but also the severity of God in judgment. 
And we must be brought to sobriety by this kindness because it is only God in his kindness. Uh, it is only the fact that God in his kindness has given to us salvation and that he has not treated us according to what we deserve in our disobedience. And I would say, you know, one thing that you can really look at this passage and just consider your place in the timeline that we're in in the church age. If you look at the world around you this hour, if you look at the pitiful state, because it is a pitiful state, of the corporatized, ineffective so-called church today, it is only by the kindness of God that we remain and are kept. It is only by the grace of God that we remain and are kept. It is only by his kindness that we, not, we have not met the crushing hand of his severity. It is only by his kindness. He has kept us. We have not kept ourselves. He has kept us. And it is only this in consideration as we do not forget what has happened to Israel and what can happen to us if we do not remain steadfast in him. That is where Paul is going next in the verses that follow. And that is where we will stop this morning and devote our time toward next week. Let's pray.